0: Section number 18 of Grotesques and Fantasies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew Nerger. Grotesques and Fantasies by Israel Zangville. Flutterduck, a ghetto grotesque. Chapter 1. Flutterduck in Feather. So sitting, served by man and maid, She felt her heart go prouder. Tennyson, the goose. Although everyone calls her Flutterduck now, there was a time when the inventor had exclusive rights to the nickname and used it only in the privacy of his own apartment. That time did not last long, for the inventor was Flutterduck's husband, and his apartment was a public workroom, among other things. He gave her the name in Yiddish, Flutterkachki, a descriptive music in syllables, full of the flutter and quack of the farmyard, it expressed his dissatisfaction with her airy, flighty propensities, her love of gaiety and gadding. She was a butterfly, irresponsible, off to balls and parties almost once a month, and he, a self-conscious aunt, resented her. From the point of view of piety, she was also sadly to seek, rejecting wigs in favor of the fringe. In the weak moments of early love her husband had acquiesced in the profanity, but later all the gain to her soft prettiness did not compensate for the twinges of his conscience Flutterduck's husband was a furrier a master furrier for did he not run a workshop this workshop was also his living room and this living room was also his bedroom it was a large front room on the first floor over a chandler's shop in an old-fashioned house in montague street whitechapel its shape was peculiar an oblong stretching streetwards interrupted in one of the longer walls by a square projection that might have been accounted a room in itself by the landlord and was indeed used as a kitchen that the fireplace had been built in this corner was thus an advantage entering through the door on the grand staircase you found yourself nearest the window with the bulk of the room on your left and the square recess at the other end of your wall so that you could not see it at first at the window which of course gave on montague street was the bare wooden table at which the hands man woman and boy sat and stitched the finished work a confusion of fur caps boas tippets and trimmings Hung over the dirty wainscot between the door and the recess the middle of the room was quite bare to give the workers freedom of movement but the wall facing you was a background for luxurious furniture first nearest the window came a sofa on which even in the first years of marriage flutter Duck's husband sometimes lay prone too unwell to do more than superintend the operations for he was of a consumptive habit over the sofa hung a large gilt-framed mirror the gilt protected by muslin drapings in the corners of which fly-blown paper flowers grew. Next to the sofa was a high chest of drawers, crowned with dusty decanters, and after an interval filled up with the Sabbath clothes hanging on pegs and covered by a white sheet. The bed used up the rest of the space, its head in one side touching the walls, and its foot stretching towards the kitchen fire. On the wall above this fire hung another mirror, small and narrow, and full of wavering watery reflections, also framed in muslin though this time the muslin served to conceal dirt not to protect guilt the kitchen dresser decorated with pink needlework paper was at right angles to the fireplace and it faced the kitchen table at which flutter duck cleaned fish peeled potatoes and made meat kosher by salting and soaking it as rabbinic law demanded by the foot of the bed in the narrow wall opposite the window was a door leading to a tiny inner room for years this door remained locked another family lived on the other side and the furrier had neither the means nor the need for an extra bedroom. It was a room made for escapades and romances, connected with the backyard by a steep ladder, up and down which the family might be seen going, and from which you could tumble into a broken-headed water-butt, or, by a dexterous backfall, arrive in a dustbin. Jacob's Ladder, the neighbors called it, though the family name was Isaac's. And over everything was the trail of the fur. The air was full of a fine fluff, A million little hairs floated about the room, covering everything, insulating themselves everywhere, getting down the backs of the workers and tickling them, getting into their lungs and making them cough, getting into their food and drink and sickening them till they learnt callousness. They awoke with furred tongues, and they went to bed with them. The irritating filaments gathered on their clothes, on their faces, on the crockery, on the sofa, on the mirrors big and little, on the bed, on the decanters, on the sheet that hid the Sabbath clothes, an impalpable down overlaying everything, penetrating even to the drinking water in the board-covered zinc bucket and covering Rebetsin, the household cat, with foreign fur. And in this room, drawing such breath of life, they sat, man, woman, boy, bending over boas, bewitching young ladies would shake in, stitch, stitch, from eight till two and from three till eight, with occasional overtime that ran on now and again far into the next day, till their eyelids would not keep open any longer and they couched on the floor on a heap of finished work stitch stitch winter and summer all day long swallowing hairsuit bread and butter at nine in the morning and pausing at tea-time for five o'clock fur. and when twilight fell the gas was lit in the crowded room thickening still further the clogged atmosphere charged with human breaths and street odors and wafts from the kitchen corner and the leathery smell of the dyed skins and at times the yellow fog would steal in to contribute its clammy vapours And often a winter's morning the fog arrived early, and the gas that had lighted the first hours of work would burn on all day in the thick air, flaring on the oriental figures with that strange glamour of gaslight and fog, and throwing heavy shadows on the bare boards, glazing with satin sheen the pendant snakes of fur, illumining the bowed heads of the workers and the master's sickly face under the tasseled smoking-cap, and touching up the faded fineries of flutter-duck as she flitted about, chattering and cooking." into such an atmosphere flutter duck one day introduced a daughter the hands getting the afternoon off in honor not of the occasion but of decency after that the crying of an infant became a feature of existence in the furrier's workshop gradually it got rarer as little rachel grew up and reconciled herself to life but the fountain of tears never quite ran dry rachel was a passionate child and did not enjoy the best of parents every morning flutter duck who felt very grateful to heaven for this crowning boon at one time bitterly dubious made the child say her prayers flutter duck said them word by word and rachel repeated them they were in hebrew and neither flutter duck nor rachel had the least idea what they meant for years these prayers preluded stormy scenes Mediani, flutter duck would begin little rachel would lisp in her piping voice it was two words but flutter duck imagined it was one she gave the syllables in recitation the ani just two notes higher than the medi and she accented them quite wrongly when rachel first grew articulate Flutterduck was so overjoyed to hear the little girl echoing her, that she would often turn to her husband with an exclamation of, "'Thou dearest, Lewis, love!' and he, impatiently, "'Nee, nee, I hear!' Flutterduck, thus recalled from the pleasures of maternity to its duties, would recommence the prayer, "'Mediani!' which little Rachel would silently ignore. "'Mediani!' Flutterduck's tone would now be imperative and ill-tempered. Then little Rachel would turn to her father querulously. She they it again mediani father and Flutterduck outraged by this childish insolence would exclaim, Thou hearest Louis love? and incontinently fall to clouting the child, and the father, annoyed by the shrill ululation consequent upon the clouting, Nee, nee, I hear too much. Rachel's refusal to be coerced into giving devotional overmeasure was not merely due to her sense of equity, her appetite counted for more. Prayers were the avenue to breakfast and to pamper her feather-headed mother in repetitions was to put back the meal flutter duck was quite capable of breaking down even in the middle if her attention was distracted for a moment and of trying back from the very beginning she would for example get as far as "Here, my daughter the instruction of thy mother giving out the words one by one in the sacred language which was to her abracadabra and little rachel equally in the dark would repeat obediently "Here, my daughter in the instruction of thy mother then the kettle would boil or flutter duck would overhear a remark made by one of the hands and interject yes i'd give him or a fat lot she knows about it or some phrase of that sort after which she would grope for the lost thread of the prayer and end by ejaculating desperately mediani and the child sternly setting her face against this flippancy there would be slapping and screaming and if the father protested flutter duck would toss her head and rejoin in her most dignified english if I been a mother, I been a mother. To the logical adult it would be obvious that the little girl's obstinacy put the breakfast still further back, but then obstinate little girls are not logical, and when Rachel had been beaten she would eat no breakfast at all. She sat sullenly in the corner, her pretty face swollen by weeping, and her great black eyes suffused with tears. Only her father could coax her then. He would go so far as to allow her to nurse Rebetzin, without reminding her that the creature's touch would make her forget all she knew, and convert her to a cat's head. And certainly Rachel always forgot not to touch the cat. Possibly the basis of her father's psychological superstition was the fact that the cat is an unclean animal, not to be handled, for he would not touch Puss himself, though her pious title of Rebetzin, or rabbi's wife, was the invention of this master of nicknames but for such flashes no one would have suspected the stern little man of humor. But he had it, dry. He called the cat Rebetsin ever since the day she refused to drink milk after meat. Perhaps she was gorged with the meat, but he insisted that the cat had caught religion through living in a Jewish family, and he developed a theory that she would not eat meat till it was kosher, so that in its earlier stages it might be exposed without risk of feline larceny. Cats are soothing to infants, but they ceased to satisfy Rachel when she grew up. Her education while it gratified her majesty's inspectors was not calculated to eradicate the domestic rebel in her at school she learned of the existence of two hebrew words called modua ani but it was not until some time after that it flashed upon her that they were closely related to mediani and the discovery did not improve her opinion of her mother she was a bonny child who promised to be a beautiful girl and her teachers petted her they dressed well, these teachers, and Rachel ceased to consider Duck's Sabbath shawl the standard of taste and splendor. Ere she was in her teens she grumbled at her home surroundings, and even fell foul of the all-pervading fur, thereby quarrelling with her bread and butter in more senses than one. She would open the window, strangely fastidious, to eat her bread and butter off the broad ledge outside the room, but often the fur only came flying the faster to the spot as if in search of air and in the winter her pretentious queasiness set everybody remonstrating and shivering in the sudden draught. Her objection to fur did not, however, embrace the preparation of it, for after school hours the little girl sat patiently stitching till late at night, by way of apprenticeship to her future, buoyed up by her earnings, and adding strip to strip, with the hair going all the same way, till she had made a great black snake. Of course, she did not get anything near three halfpence for twelve yards, like the real hands, but whatever she earned went towards her festival frocks, what she would have got in any case. Not knowing this, she was happy to deserve the pretty dresses she loved, and was least impatient of her mother's chatter when Flutterduck dinned into her ears how pretty she looked in them. Alas, it was to be feared Lewis was right that Flutterduck was a rattlebrain indeed, and the years which brought Flutter Duck prosperity, which emancipated her from personal participation in the sewing and gave Rachel the little bedroom to herself, did not bring wisdom. When Flutterduck's felicity culminated in a maid servant, if only one who slept out, She was like a child with a monkey on a stick. She gave the servant orders merely to see her arms and legs moving. She also lay late in bed to enjoy the spectacle of the factotum making the nine o'clock coffee it had been for so many years her own duty to prepare for the hands. How sweetly the waft of chicory came into her nostrils. At first her husband remonstrated. It is not beautiful, he said. You ought to get up before the hands come. Flutterduck flushed resentfully. If I been a missus, I been a missus, she said with dignity. It became one of her formulae. When the servant developed insolence, as under Flutterduck's fostering familiarity she did, Flutterduck would resume her dignity with a jerk. If I been a missus, she would say, tossing her flighty head haughtily, I been a missus. End of Flutterduck Chapter one Flutterduck in Feather